Isaiah chapter 10, and we'll read from verse 1. Woe unto them that decree unrighteous decrees, and that write grievousness which they have prescribed, to turn aside the needy from judgment, and to take away the right from the poor of my people, that widows may be their prey, and that they may rob the fatherless. And what will ye do in the day of visitation, and in the desolation which shall come from far? To whom will ye flee for help, and where will ye leave your glory? Without me they shall bow down under the prisoners, and they shall fall under the slain. For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. O Assyrian, the rod of mine anger and the staff in their hand is mine indignation. I will send him against an hypocritical nation, and against the people of my wrath will I give him a charge to take the spoil, and to take the prey, and to tread down them like the and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. Howbeit he meaneth not so, neither doth his heart think so, but it is in his heart to destroy and cut off nations not a few. For he saith, Are not my princes altogether kings? Is not Calno and Carchemish? Is not Hamath as Arpid? Is not Samaria as Damascus? As my hand hath found the kingdoms of the idols, and, whom, and whose graven images did excel them of Jerusalem and of Samaria, shall I not, as I have done unto Samaria, and her idols, so do to Jerusalem and her idols? Wherefore, it shall come to pass that when the Lord hath performed his whole work upon Mount Zion and on Jerusalem, I will punish the fruit of the stout heart of the king of Assyria and the glory of his high looks. For he saith, By the strength of my hand I have done it, and by my wisdom for I am prudent, and I have removed the bounds of the people, and have robbed their treasures, and have put down the inhabitants like a valiant man. And my hand hath found a as a nest the riches of the people, and as one gathereth eggs that are left, have I gathered all the earth. And there was none that moved the wing, or opened the mouth, or peeped. Shall the axe boast itself against him that heweth therewith? Or shall the saw magnify itself against him that shaketh it? As if the rod should shake itself against them that lift it up? Or as if the staff should lift up itself as if it were no wood? Therefore shall the Lord, the Lord of hosts, send among his fat ones leanness, and under his glory he shall kindle a burning like the burning of a fire. And the light of Israel shall be for a fire, and his holy one for a flame. And it shall burn and devour his thorns and his briars in one day. And shall consume the glory of his forest 
and of his fruitful field, both soul and body, and they shall be as when a standard bearer fainteth. And the rest of the trees of his forest shall be few that a child may write them. And it shall come to pass in that day that the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall no more again stay upon him that smote them, but shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. The remnant shall return, even the remnant of Jacob, unto the mighty God. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return, the consummation decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of, I said consummation there, I I meant consumption. Let me read verse 22 again. For though thy people Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet a remnant of them shall return. The consumption, that word means promise, the consumption decreed shall overflow with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts shall make a consumption even determined in the midst of all the land. Therefore, thus saith the Lord God of hosts, O my people that dwellest in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrian. He shall smite thee with a rod and shall lift up his staff against thee after the manner of Egypt. For yet a little while, a very little while, and the indignation shall cease, and mine anger in their destruction. And the Lord of hosts shall stir up a scourge for him, according to the slaughter of Midian at the rock Oreb, and as the and as his rod was upon the sea, so shall he lift it up after the manner of Egypt. And it shall come to pass in that day that his burden shall be taken away from off thy shoulder, and his yoke from off thy neck, and the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. He is come to Eath, he is passed to Migron. At Mishmash he hath laid up his carriages. They are gone over the passage. They have taken up their lodging at Geba. Ramah is afraid. Gibeah of Saul is fled. Lift up thy voice, O daughter of Galim. Cause it to be heard unto Lashish, O poor Anathoth. Madmina is removed. The inhabitants of Geben gather themselves to flee. As yet shall he remain at Nob that day. He shall shake his hand against the mount of the daughter of Zion, the hill of Jerusalem. Behold, the Lord, the Lord of hosts, shall lop the bow with terror, and the high ones of stature shall be hewn down, and the haughty shall be humbled. And he shall cut down the thickets of the forest with iron, and Lebanon shall fall by a mighty one. Amen. May the Lord bless to us this reading from his word. Our Lord Jesus Christ told his disciples that he would send his Holy Spirit to them when he was returning back to heaven. And he told them that his Holy Spirit would 
lead them or guide them into all truth. And this is what we seek today. We want to know the truth. Perhaps someone might wonder why it is that I don't preach more about sins or about moral issues, for example, which are really just immoral issues. Why don't we tell people how they should live, what's right and what's wrong, and decry all the false teaching that is going on around about us? Many churches today are actually defined by their position on such moral issues. You can find strict churches and you can find liberal churches all inclusive and accommodating of all views and practices churches there are happy churches there are solemn and somber churches there are strongly conservative and exclusive churches where any hint of flakiness on the key issues of the day will get you expelled or excommunicated there are churches of all kinds. But we want to know Christ. Like those who came to the disciples, we say, as it were, Sirs, we would see Jesus. And that's our great burden today, that we might get a glimpse of the Lord Jesus Christ, that, that in these words that Isaiah spoke, that these words that he recorded and wrote down, that the prophecies that were given for the comfort of the people of his days might still point us to the Lord Jesus Christ and that God the Holy Spirit would guide us into all truth. Knowing the truth is not the same as knowing the right ethical position on the latest moral abuse. It is knowing the one who is the truth. It is knowing Jesus Christ personally in our lives, in our daily experience, in the sharing of a relationship with him. It is knowing that our consciences are clear of the guilt of our sin by the application of his blood. It is knowing that our hearts are joyful for the blessedness of his grace freely gifted to us. The Lord told his followers, ye shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. If the Son therefore shall make you free, ye shall be free indeed. And a believer's joy is found in trusting Christ. Trusting him for complete cleansing and full forgiveness of sin. And Christian freedom is the Lord's easy yoke by which all we do and all we say and all we think is brought to the touchstone of God's love for us in Christ. 
and our love for him who first loved us. So that coming to this chapter 10 in Isaiah, we notice once again the repeated phrase of the Lord's antipathy, his opposition towards sin. He says in verse 4, For all this his anger is not turned away, but his hand is stretched out still. And we are reminded in these passages, as the Lord brings his judgment upon Israel and his judgment upon Judah, and as the Lord promises that he will bring his wrath against Assyria and its nation for its pride and its haughtiness, we are reminded of God's hatred of sin and the promised judgment of human wickedness that he will meet out against the men and women of this world. It will be thorough and it will be absolute. The everlasting duration of hell, together with the infinite suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, teach us that God's wrath against sin is awful and terrible. So let, let, let no one ever think that sin is a light matter. God judges it mercilessly. And that is the picture that we have in these chapters in Isaiah that we are studying together. These Old Testament times, God is displaying here the nature and extent of his holiness, his aggression towards sin and thereby the necessity of a saviour. And what we discover from these passages is that blow after blow is struck against sin by whatever tool God chooses to use. Sometimes he brings plague upon a nation. Sometimes it's famine. Sometimes it's a foreign enemy. Sometimes it is economic instability. Sometimes it's earthquakes. And so it was with Assyria. Assyria was a tool in the hand of the Lord to bring punishment upon the wickedness of Israel and Judah. But from the worm that turneth not and eats at a man's conscience to the raging fires of hell itself, let us mark and know that no sin goes unseen and none shall go unpunished. In one of our Lord's parables, the parable of the marriage feast, he speaks of a man who had come unprepared into the presence of a king. And he was unfit for the presence of a king because of his dress, because of his condition. And the king said to his servants, bind him hand and foot, take him away and cast him into outer darkness. 
there shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Without holiness, we are unfit for the presence of King Jesus. And without faith, it is impossible to please God. But here we have a message from God's faithful prophet. Here Isaiah does not leave the Lord's people comfortless. In the face of this destruction, under the rod of the Assyrian army and king, with all of the devastation that that brought into the land, there is a message that is given, that is granted to the Lord's people amongst Judah and Israel. He brings a message of hope for the people to hold on to and a promise to trust. He says, in that day when all around is darkness, in that day when men and women for fear weep and wail and gnash their teeth, when the wicked perish without hope of any deliverer, in that day, the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Let me read that verse again. In that day, the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Here, the Lord and Isaiah, his prophet, is speaking about God's elect people. Not only amongst the Jews of that age, but the remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob is a picture of God's elect in all ages worldwide. Okay, the word the elect or, or the churches is much smaller and easier to remember. But this is exactly what the Lord is saying. The remnant of Israel and such as are escaped of the house of Jacob is a name given to the church of God. And it is also true that Isaiah was speaking of events many years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into this world. But the way of salvation is the same for all men and women who are saved. And when Paul tells us in Romans chapter 9, a remnant shall be saved, he is speaking about spiritual and eternal salvation. He is speaking about the church. He is speaking about the Lord's little flock. He is speaking about the elect of God, the remnant, and those who are saved from the house of Jacob. And that is why this passage is much more than just a history lesson. Our God chose a people in eternal election and decreed their salvation. He set them apart 
from the rest of humanity by sanctifying them. He foreordained them to glory by justifying them in his sight upon the merits of his son Jesus Christ. He committed them into Christ's care for their redemption and for the reconciling of their souls. And Christ, the Son of God, delivered them out of Satan's grasp when he gained his victory on the cross. And here, that same people are called the remnant of Israel and the escaped of the house of Judah. They're God's elect. Paul says they were loved by God. They were foreknown of God. They were predestinated by him to be conformed to the image of his son. They were to be called in Holy Spirit quickening according to God's sovereign grace, justified with divine righteousness, cleansed from their sins by the blood of Jesus Christ, and they shall most assuredly be glorified according to God's good purpose and to sovereign will and mercy. So that it is to these blessed people at the Lord's behest that Isaiah's words are directed for a source of comfort to his children. And though Isaiah speaks, as it were, to kings and judges and nations and individuals and even historical characters, as he does uh, so in, in this passage, to, uh, to, to Jacob, to the patriarch Jacob, calling him Israel. It is in such ways that the Holy Spirit leads God's people into all truth. And it is by such knowledge of the truth, or expressly the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, that we are made free indeed. That was true for Isaiah and for the saints in Isaiah's day, and it is true for the Lord's people of every age and every nation. It is by knowledge of the truth, it is by knowledge of Jesus Christ, that we are made free indeed. Now, the prophet Isaiah gives us three features of this elect remnant that help us to identify them and to identify the path of salvation upon which they are walking. And what I'm going to do for the rest of our time is just look briefly at these uh, three. The first one is slightly uh, fuller than the second two, so don't be concerned when I seem to take a while over point one and then say point two. That doesn't mean that I've forgotten my, uh, my, 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 my watch or my time. I'm aware of the time. But uh, here are three uh, ways in which this remnant are described. And uh, I, think, I think there's some lovely thoughts here from Isaiah today. The first one is this. The remnant shall stay. That means to lean upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. That's what we read together in verse 20. And here Isaiah is telling us one of the characteristics of 
the Lord's elect people. They shall stay upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Now, this staying, it's, it's, not, it's perhaps an, an, a, an older, a more archaic uh, meaning of the word stay. A few weeks ago I was uh, looking at uh, uh, some pictures of the way in which uh, ships were built in, in a bygone era and they had stays that were put up at the sides of the, uh, the ship as it was being built to hold it in place. And, and they were called stays and that's the old meaning of the word to stay. It means to lean upon so that the, the structure could lean upon these reinforcements. Well, that's the same meaning of the word stay. And the remnant stay upon the Lord. We lean upon the Lord. Now, the contrast that we have here is that this is what the nation of Judah was doing with Assyria. They thought they were in danger. They thought they were going to be overwhelmed by their aggressive neighbours. So they went to the king of Assyria and they said, Let us lean upon you. Let us be strengthened by you. Judah rejected God and sought instead support and protection and deliverance from Sennacherib, an idol-worshipping tyrant. They were staying themselves on Assyria. They were leaning on the power of man. They were depending on the strength of his army. And they were reasoning in their hearts and in their minds that Sennacherib was a more trustworthy helper than was God. What fleshy thinking that was. And yet it is exactly the thinking of the natural man. We imagine we are smart enough, able enough, good enough to work things out for ourselves. And the natural man stays himself on the works of the flesh and thinks he has no need of Jesus Christ. But either salvation is all of God or it is not of God at all. God doesn't share his glory with men and women. He does not say, you do your bit and I'll do mine. Such theology is damnable. It will lead men and women to eternal destruction. This is why Judah was being persecuted now. This is why Judah was being judged by God because this was where they were placing their hope. They were placing their hope on the actions of men, on the strength of men, on the will of men. That was the, the, the heart of their hope and their confidence. And when a sinner stays rather on Christ, he leans on him. 
he lays himself on Christ like Christ laid the lost sheep on his shoulder in the parable of the good shepherd and carried him home. Staying on Christ speaks of complete reliance, complete trust and dependence. So that a characteristic of the remnant of the elect is that they trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and that completely for all their salvation, for all their fitness for the presence of God, for all their righteousness, for all that they need before God. That is a characteristic of the elect of God. We're not trying to bring our good works to the party. We're not trying to make our contribution. We're not looking for God to to make up the bit that's missing from our efforts. We are relying utterly and completely upon the righteousness of God, the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ and the cleansing power of his blood. And we are saying we are nothing, we bring nothing, we can do nothing, but we stand wholly and completely, we stay ourselves on Christ. Whatever God requires of me must come from Christ alone, for I have nothing in myself to offer, nothing to give, that isn't tainted, spotted, and stained with sin. But there's more here to be said even than that. We're told by Isaiah, they are stayed upon the Lord of hosts in truth. Isaiah adds this fact, that they stay upon the Lord in truth for the help of the people. He reminds us that it is good for us to hear the gospel. He reminds us that it is good for us to know the gospel and thus to learn Christ. There is in this truth a knowledge that enters into our hearts, into our souls, into our minds. Brothers and sisters, ours is not a blind faith or faith that is built on ignorance of what Christ has done. Rather, ours is faith that is built and based upon revealed truth. And we take it as being important that we learn Christ. We learn the truth. We know the gospel. Isaiah says, still to come to it, it's in chapter 26 and verse 3. So it's a, a few weeks away yet if we continue on our pattern. But Isaiah says, thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. There's that word again. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And it is as our minds in truth are stayed on Christ and his work that we find peace in our souls. 
our comfort, our peace in our Christian walk, in our Christian experience, is founded on having our mind stayed on Christ and his work. It is trusting him because we have been led into the truth by God the Holy Spirit. We are at peace, we are at liberty with God because Christ has mediated our peace. He has reconciled us to God. He has done so. That is according to the scriptures, according to the gospel, according to the promises of God, an unalterable and unconditional fact. Our minds are stayed on the Lord of hosts in truth. But as we are tried in this life, and as we are tested in this world, and as we are troubled by the problems and the persecutions and the opposition that we face, as the world and the flesh and the devil test our confidence and try our faith and we discover that our peace is shaken, then we find when that happens that those who are stayed on Christ go back to his accomplishments, meditate on his blood, consider his faithfulness, dwell on his love, ponder what heaven will be like and reflect on his full and free salvation to comfort and support us and give us peace in times of trouble. You see what Isaiah is saying? Those who are stayed upon the Lord are stayed upon the Lord in truth. It is his gospel, it is what he has done that brings us peace and comfort in our life. So that is the first characteristic that Isaiah here shows concerning those who are the elect of God. They are stayed upon him. Second thing he shows us is that this people, this elect, this remnant shall return to the Lord. So here is another mark of the Lord's elect. They return to the Lord. Now I'm going to suggest to you that this is not primarily our first turning to Christ in conversion but a returning to the Lord throughout the days of our Christian experience. When we're first converted, in those first rays of spiritual light, as they enter our soul and illuminate our understanding, there may be a feeling of joy, a change in outlook, a sense of relief and, and closeness to Christ. But what every believer finds is that that initial flush of enthusiasm and, 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 and pleasure and, and joy, it doesn't last. And we soon find the Christian life to be hard and we begin to have doubts. We encounter sin 
where we never knew it existed before. We develop a growing sense of unworthiness, an awareness that in temptation we are weak, and that weakness fosters a sense of fear, of stumbling in the way, and of falling and of failing, despite our desire to honour and serve our Master. That is the experience of the Lord's people. It has been since the days of Isaiah, it has been in the history of the church, and it is today for the Lord's elect, for people, believers like you and like me. So what do the elect do? They return to the Lord. The remnant return to the Lord and they stay on him. They go back to the blood. They go back to the cross. They go back to imputed righteousness. They go back to free, unconditional grace. The gospel of Christ sustains us in the dark paths, in the path which no fowl knoweth, and which the vulture's eye hath not seen. And we look again for the Saviour, and we listen for him at the door, and we seek him where he is to be found, and we return to him again and again. And it is in such a situation that we find the true sense of the great welcoming texts of scriptures. Like when Isaiah writes, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Ye come buy wine and milk without money and without price. It is at such times as we return to the Lord that we find these beautiful truths, these beautiful verses to have their greatest meaning and effect. Or when the Lord says, Come unto me, all ye that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Or when he says in Revelation chapter 3, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and I will sup with him and he with me. You see, these verses are not for a, a, a narrow segment of individuals at one particular moment in time. They are our inheritance. They are the comfort of the Lord's people every day of our life as we return to him in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our problems, our faults and our failures and our falls. And then Isaiah gives us a third characteristic of this remnant elect people. He says, let me tell you what the remnant do. The remnant prove God's faithfulness. They prove his faithfulness. And I was trying to work out a, a good way of, of, of explaining or, or, or emphasizing what I mean here by the word prove. It, it, it means that we vindicate what God has said. It means that we exhibit and demonstrate in our lives what God has promised. We prove 
God's faithfulness. We fulfill God's promise to Jacob. Isaiah addresses Israel directly uh, here in, 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 in this chapter. He says, and I, and I think it's a blessed thought, he says, look, God promised Adam a son would be born to bruise the serpent's head. He promised Abraham that a nation numerous as the sand of the sea would be given to him as an heritage. He promised Jacob that Shiloh, that is Christ, would come. And all those promises are fulfilled in Christ and in his bride. And that's the important part here. They're fulfilled as Christ wins and takes and gathers his people to himself. They are fulfilled as Christ brings his elect and they stay on him and return to him. We do not trust God because we see the promises fulfilled. Rather, by trusting God, by God's irresistible grace, we are the promises fulfilled. We're not standing independent watching God at work here. We are seeing God's handiwork in ourselves, in our hearts, in our lives, in our experiences, in the experiences of our brothers and sisters, in the church, in the gathering of his people, in the deliverance of the remnant and his elect. In John chapter 6, the Jews taunted Jesus. They said, show us a sign and we will believe. See, they were, they were, they were standing outside, looking in and saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, prove yourself worthy of our faith. If you show us a sign, we'll believe. That's, that's what the world says, is it not, today? Well, what did Jesus say to them in John 6, 29? Jesus answered and said unto them, This is the work of God. This is the sign, if you like. You're asking for a sign. This is the sign that ye believe on him whom he hath sent. They said unto him, What sign showest us thou then, that we may see and believe thee? What dost thou work? And that's what the world is still saying today. They are saying to the church, they are saying to God, they are saying to the Lord Jesus Christ, prove it. Prove what you are saying is true. Show us a sign, give us an evidence, and we shall believe and we shall have faith. As if faith was an easy thing. Show us a sign and we'll believe. And the Lord says, nah. No, no, he says, that's not, that's not how it works. The Lord says, blessed are they that have not seen and yet have believed. 
And in Romans chapter 4, verse 7, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. So that finally, here, Isaiah gives us, gives the elect remnant a little gem, as it were, to admire, to, to hold and to cherish all through the years and the decades and the centuries of waiting and anticipating the coming Messiah. Isaiah gives them a little gem to hold and to have while they are waiting. And I think and I suggest to you that it is the foundation of every believer's confidence and comfort in the Lord. Isaiah tells the people, the yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. The yoke shall be destroyed because of the anointing. What was the yoke that he was speaking about? He was speaking about Sennacherib. He was speaking about Assyria, but not merely the yoke of Assyria or Babylon, which was to come after, but the yoke of sin and death. Because Isaiah is speaking here of Christ, who was anointed for the destruction of our enemies. He is speaking of the one of whom he has already spoken in chapter 9 verse 6. Where he said, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Christ was anointed to accomplish our deliverance and bring in our salvation. And this is what he is telling the people. This is pure gospel in Isaiah. Our Lord Jesus was anointed with the oil of gladness above his fellows, anointed with the Holy Ghost and with power to save and to heal the souls of chosen sinners according to God's sovereign mercy and promised grace. The salvation of all the elect of God of every age is fixed in God's covenant purpose, which Jesus of Nazareth was appointed and anointed to fulfill. Brothers and sisters, we who are the elect of God stay on the Lord. We return to the Lord and we prove the Lord to be faithful in all his ways. We don't seek a miracle, we don't look for a sign, because we are ourselves the miracle, and we are the sign, and Christ has been anointed for the blessing of our souls. May the Lord bless these thoughts to us today. Amen.